This is catastrophic, Frank. This is worse than a war. People are volunteering for these vaccinations and they're losing their lives. I'm an academic doctor. I see patients, but I'm very involved in research. I'm an editor of two major journals. Uh, in my field, I'm the most published person in my field, which deals with the heart and the kidneys in the world in history. So I'm calling for the vaccine programs to stop worldwide, all of them. Our safety report of 20,000 deaths in VAERS, where the total annual number is, is no more than 150, it's a clear signal that something's going wrong with the COVID-19 vaccine program. It has unprecedented mortality associated with it. And I think anyone who is promoting vaccination in children, uh, that their intentions are reprehensible. There's concern now, if we get into boosters every six months, that the vaccines could be oncogenic, they could be cancer forming. That's what every American, that's what every Irish person deserves. They deserve high quality treatment. This viral pandemic has been a disaster. It's been a personal disaster for so many families where people have been hospitalized or in fact passed away. And so much of it really is preventable with high quality treatment. Uh, there is a failure of in large numbers and there's not a single failure of natural immunity. Dr. McCullough, if you just um, introduce yourself and give me your background and credentials, that'd be brilliant. Well, thanks for having me on the show. And it's a, certainly a pleasure to join the, uh, the audience in Ireland. My family's originally from Ireland. You can probably tell by my last name. Okay. And uh, I'm a, a board certified and practicing internist, cardiologist. I'm a trained epidemiologist. I'm an academic practice in Dallas, Texas. I spend about half my time in patient care like today, uh, but half the time as an author as an editor. I'm the president of the Cardiorenal Society of America, major medical society. I'm the editor-in-chief of Cardiorenal Medicine, the senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology, the former editor-in-chief of Cardiorenal Medicine. I have over 650 publications in the National Library of Medicine. These are peer-reviewed and vetted papers. Uh, that's in the top uh, uh, echelon of academic physicians in the world. I have 51 papers on COVID-19 the pandemic, including the two seminal papers, teaching doctors how to treat COVID-19 early in 2020. Uh, I am a frequent contributor uh, to all the major news services uh, in the United States and many uh, in the world. I've testified in the US Senate under oath uh, concerning my analyses and understanding of the pandemic and the path forward in terms of pandemic response. And I've done likewise in multiple state and other houses of uh, legislation in the United States. Uh, so many have considered me among the top experts in the world on COVID-19. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to give my fair balanced analysis of where we are on your program today. Thank you. 85%, 85%, I want you to remember that number, 85%. We have over 500,000 deaths in the United States. The preventable fraction could have been as high as 85% if our pandemic response would have been laser focused on the problem, the sick patient right in front of us. We we're focused over here and focused over there and focused on masks and what have you. Laser focus, sick patient, treat them. We lost focus on the most fundamental so, thing. Dr. Uh, that's, my, that's my testimony. Yeah. Uh, I suppose I wanted to approach this time that we have together um, from the perspective of trying to in some way bring the sanity back into the doctor-patient relationship. I think somehow in this last 20 months it has been doctor or it has been state and patient as opposed to doctor and patient and almost the doctor from I'm talking on a broad way the doctor is just implementing a state strategy and the individual has been lost in the idea of a collective and that collective has not necessarily been served but I suppose that that's where I'm, my kind of opening gambit and I'm going to bring it right back to be as personal as possible and take it from there. So 
um, last year, I came last March, I came home from holidays in Austria. And within a week, I had uh, symptoms of COVID. And within eight days, I kind of experienced a bit of breathlessness, maybe eight to 10 days, I can't be uh, specific. But I, I um, and at the time, obviously, it was wall to wall media, wall to wall stay at home, wall to wall fear. And this is the worst thing that has hit the earth on, in a long, long time. And um, and I, I, I began to, I stayed away from my doctor because I thought, well, I, you know, I'm of the right age, I can get through this. And then rapidly, I was kind of getting a little bit anxious. I was kind of going, okay, I mean, am I going to have to be hospitalized here? Because the breathlessness was obvious. And um, so I'd ring up my doctor and my doctor would say, well, you just stay at home now. You're not to go anywhere. And then another couple of days go by, I go, okay, maybe I am underreacting. I need to overreact. And I would ring again. And the doctor would say, look, unless if you can walk up the stairs, you're fine. Stay away from the hospitals because then you need to stay in, et cetera, et cetera. I suppose what I, in that fear, there was nobody with any kind of rational sense to talk to. Now, if I had had the good fortune to, and you were my doctor and I rang you up, um, I believe you might have said something different to me. From the very beginning of the pandemic, I've always treated my patients uh, who are over age 50, who have some additional medical problems, and certainly those who develop symptoms, although I never wait for pulmonary symptoms to start treatment. But I've always treated them from the very beginning with what's called the precautionary principle. That is, uh, you know, we take this very seriously. We know patients can die of this illness. We're not going to wait for large randomized trials. Uh, we're not going to wait for guidelines that would be based on large randomized trials, because we know that those processes, as good as they are, take years and years. They take two to five years. And we certainly wouldn't wait for government agencies to tell us what to do, because they would have to rely on those guidelines. So the government agencies would be the last ones to provide any guidance on what to do with patients. So this is really about the doctor patient relationship, what's called the fiduciary relationship. That's a golden circle that sits above guidelines. It sits above uh, large randomized trials and certainly sits above the government agencies, which really serve us. The government agencies are subservient to the doctor patient relationship. So then in that frame of mind, I ring you up. Are you going to tell me to stay at home there, Frank? Or what is the next step in that? Given that we were uh, I suppose vaccines seem to be talked about as the miracle solution and and there was no other solution, but that wasn't the case. In the US, there was people like you and people like Dr. Pierre Corey who were shouting to say, look, we have ways of treating this. You know, I can tab, you know, I just assume by looking at you, let's say you're over age 50 and, and you have at least a, you know, one medical problem. And it can be anything from high blood pressure to diabetes, heart or lung disease, kidney disease, obesity. It looks like you don't have that. But let me just say that an individual like you would call me on day one. What we do is the first thing that's state of the art right now is we start oral and nasal virucidal therapy. Once the virus lands in the nose, there's about three to five days of an incubation period. So there's a chance to actually neutralize the virus before symptoms emerge. The nasal spray or wash, uh, an oral gargle, uh, the lead solution is called betadine, also known as povidone iodine. It's available uh, over the counter and certainly over Amazon and other uh, internet ordering services as a 10% solution. So we dilute it down to 1%. That would be about two teaspoons and six ounces of water. And then you'd actually spray that up into your nose, sniff it back and then spit it out using a spray bottle or a bulb syringe and then gargle with it. And in the setting of acute COVID-19, we follow the randomized trial by Chowdhury and colleagues uh, that was published earlier this year. That shortens the duration of PCR positivity dramatically to just down to a few days. And dramatically, I mean, by over 75%, reduces the chances of progression of symptoms, including the need for hospitalization, oxygenation, and death. It's a dramatic improvement. We would start within the nose. And I bet you had symptoms for days in the nose and nothing was done directly to, uh, to address the ascending viral replication that was happening in your nose. Well, nothing was done. So not even a little anything, nothing was done. It was stay at home. 
and it was well, isolate. Yeah. But let, let me extend what else you can do. This is important because these are things that people can do without doctors. Mm. So the oral nasal uh, viral cytal treatment now is a standard and it's, it, it really takes uh, mild cases and it keeps them mild. It stops this progression of illness. And if uh, iodine is not tolerated or if someone has a hyperfunctioning thyroid, uh, we would use dilute hydrogen peroxide with the little Lugoyles iodine. This is in a sense, now uh, there are over uh, nine clinical studies, 2000 patients enrolled. Uh, we know that this oral nasal treatment really works, particularly with the Delta variant, which relies on very high viral replication rates in the nose. Then after that, we would start a baseline level of nutraceuticals. Not that they're curative, but they help. And again, they're over the counter. Every person in Ireland can have a, a little toolkit in a survival kit, if you will. So the first item is povidone iodine. It's about $7 on Amazon, uh, seven US dollars. The next thing in the kit would be zinc, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc, vitamin D3, 5,000 international units. We take this at baseline. In the setting of acute treatment, we increase that to 20,000 units a day, at least for five days. Vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams, and then a polyphenol sub uh, a supplement called quercetin or quercetin, 500 milligrams a day baseline, and then twice a day in acute treatment. And then we add one over-the-counter antihistamine and antacid medicine called famotidine. Famotidine, the United States is under the brand name of Pepsid. And that basically constitutes the baseline survival kit that everyone should have in their house who are still susceptible to COVID-19. It costs just a few dollars, no doctor required. So if all those things are started, then you're actually in good shape. In your case, uh, potentially it could have been kept uh, to a bare minimum. Now, uh, in the United States, because we have the most cases uh, per million population in the world and the most deaths per, per uh, million population in the world, we tend to be conservative. And so we actually have patients get monoclonal antibody infusions. So in the United States, we have some high-tech products that were delivered through our Operation Warp Speed, our response to the pandemic. And so that includes three products now, one by Lilly, Regeneron, and GlaxoSmithKline. So uh, the, uh, of those three, the one that has the best outcomes data is the GlaxoSmithKline product called Sotorivimab. Now, if we give monoclonal antibodies, we skip the next uh, sequence of drugs, and we go ahead and uh, treat patients with inhaled budesonide that would have helped your lungs. We use oral uh, colchicine uh, for 30 days, oral aspirin for 90 days. If uh, uh, on day five or you have pulmonary symptoms, which you did, we would have started oral prednisone, uh, which is a steroid, uh, prednisolone. And then lastly, for very high-risk patients, let's say you were immobile, obese, you were in a wheelchair, something like that at baseline, we would have used blood thinners like injectable low molecular heparin or oral anticoagulants. What I've described for you is what's called sequenced multidrug therapy for outpatient COVID-19. Uh, this is associated even with the earliest protocols with an 85% reduction in hospitalization and death. We think we can achieve now probably at least 95% protection against hospitalization and death. That's far better uh, than anything we've seen in any other aspect of COVID-19. It does take effort, but we've mobilized an entire uh, league of doctors in the United States, four national telemedicine services, 15 regional services. And these doctors, uh, in a sense, have moved far beyond what the government uh, bodies have offered. The government bodies have officially offered nothing for outpatients. And uh, we have made the observation that when patients come into the hospital, it's far too late for uh, treatment. And even in the recent paper by 1040 and colleagues published in JAMA from the IV network, uh, for those who were vaccinated and who became ill with COVID-19, the mortality was uh, between six and 7%. And for those unvaccinated, the mortality was between eight and 9%. Uh, and, and those are, you know, those are high numbers. You know, this typical mortality for a heart attack in the United States nowadays is 2%. Now, sadly, if patients uh, progress to the intensive care unit and need that level of care uh, from the COVID net network, and also a recent randomized trial called the steroid two trial, we know that the 28 day mortality of those individuals no matter what care they receive, is over 30%. And that's unacceptably high. So the precautionary principle says it's a mass casualty event. We rely on signals of benefit, acceptable safety. Uh, I brought that forward to the world in two seminal papers last year, 
in the American Journal of Medicine and reviews in cardiovascular medicine. Those are the most widely downloaded and utilized uh, papers in all of outpatient treatment for COVID-19. Dr. Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick led the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. Uh, they have uh, their own protocols that they have arrived at independently. Dr. Didier Rialt arrived at his own protocols independently. Dr. Sankaret Chetty in South Africa, also his independent protocols. And I want the world to know it's reassuring that people working separately and independently came up with the same conclusions, little different blend of medications, but treating the same principles. We treat to reduce viral replication. Then we treat the inflammation, what's called cytokine storm. And lastly, we always handle the blood clotting feature of the illness with anticoagulants, antiplatelet drugs. See, what's dramatic about everything you've said there um, is uh, the equivalent in my country in terms of uh, before you get very, very sick is zero. Zero. Even something as um, something like vitamin D is even just for your own well-being was totally there's everything and anything was squashed. Um, so it's kind of uh, how quickly do you feel if you were to look back in the last whatever it's 20 months now, but if you were to look back, uh, how quickly did you get from you're talking 90 percent? And recently I heard you say 85 percent. How quickly did you get to those sorts of figures? I testified in the U.S. Senate under oath in November 19th of 2020. I felt at that time we could have saved 50 percent of the lives uh, with an early treatment program. I saved as many as I could. And doctors in my circles did uh, the best they possibly could, really heroic efforts. We had doctors treating thousands of patients in the United States, really against all kinds of resistance. And then in the Texas Senate, by March 10th of 2021, under oath, I testified that 85% of lives could be saved. Uh, we now have Senate testimony scheduled in January of 2022. And I, I'm prepared to tell America, I think we now are at 95% of lives could have been saved of those that are lost today with early treatment. Our, our treatments are too good now. And they include our emergency use authorized monoclonal antibodies, but also our intelligent use of over-the-counter supplements and medications, and then uh, oral prescription medications. We have two more to add, by the way. We have a new product from Pfizer. It's a combination of two drugs that inhibit proteases, and then a new one from Merck, a drug that inhibits uh, the polymerase. You know, outside the United States, there is a polymerase inhibitor used in Japan and Russia and states in India. It's called favipiravir. So what I want people in Ireland to understand is there's a ton of worldwide um, collaboration. This is a potentially fatal illness. Of course, it needs treatment early. All potentially fatal infections in high-risk patients need treatment early to stop the progression of disease. Do you know in your case, Frank, as you described it, you were probably contagious for two weeks straight. Everybody you could have come in contact with, you contaminated. And with early treatment, you would have been, uh, uh, had a truncated period of time in which you were infectious. It would have been uh, reduced to about three to four days. And three to four days, that meant you could have completed a period of, of lockdown and quarantine for a very brief period of time, you wouldn't have spread the virus anywhere. And, you know, recently I was on a podcast show in the United States, Joe Rogan. And it turns out that Joe Rogan is one of the more popular uh, podcasters uh, anywhere in the world. And, and millions and millions of people learned to listen to that message. And Joe Rogan, uh, he received what he received basically was now copyrighted called the McCullough Protocol. What I described, I said, Joe, you didn't realize it but you received the McCullough protocol and you were better in three to four days. That's what every American, that's what every Irish person deserves. They deserve high quality treatment. This viral pandemic has been a disaster. It's been a personal disaster for so many families where people have been hospitalized or in fact passed away. And so much of it really is preventable with high quality treatment. And that's the, uh, that's, it has just been absent. And there's almost now, um, which I will get to in a while, but this absence of the doctor-patient relationship um, uh, has kind of reached, if, you, if you've made particular decisions for your choice, you know, like the vaccine, and we'll talk a little bit about that, 
there's almost now a reticence, I'd say, to go to a doctor because there's the feeling of the first thing that they're going to ask you, well, are you vaccinated? And a judgment about that. But you see, it's even the way you spoke and the way when Dr. Pierre Corey spoke, what resonated with me is this a solution orientated mind in the sense that we, we are looking at the this is warlike scenario. They're even using words like frontline workers. Then any and all remedies should be chosen or tried. And especially when they are of limited zero risk and high potential benefit. Some of the words that Dr. Pierre Corey. So I, I could never understand. OK, well, what is there's an, other solutions? Are we not trying other solutions here? And it just seemed to be flatline. And even questioning that it was just sit tight, bunker up and wait for the wait for the vaccine but take it then for me in April when I was I had recovered I still felt a little kind of not 100% but um and obviously the world was filled with long COVID and also the world was filled with words like well natural immunity isn't there isn't such a thing as natural immunity I didn't take that off the trees it was oh it's only lasts for three months or and then it was okay six months natural immunity but um, I was kind of going at that, that early point, going, hold on a second now. I've had it. Why are you telling me that uh, my body, this wonderful creation, can't do something about it? it you know, it, that was just pure, you know, common sense. So I've had it. And still now across, there does not seem to be, in we know in mainstream media or politicians or anywhere talking about natural immunity and how wonderful natural immunity is well, it's true like other uh, viral upper respiratory tract infections we don't keep getting the very same virus over and over again uh, because you know with the common cold there's whole there's a whole variety of different viruses so you know different viruses and different uh, phylogeny can in a sense cause a, a common cold uh, but people know this they get a cold and they finish they don't turn around and get another cold and another cold. We know this with COVID-19 that when someone got the illness, they didn't turn around and get it two weeks later. If that was possible, our nursing homes would just keep cycling over and over again with this propagation of disease over and over again. It simply doesn't happen. It's, it's one and done. Uh, there's about 100 cases in the peer-reviewed literature where the doctors think maybe a patient got it twice. I've looked at them uh, very carefully. Not a single one passes any type of uh, validity test in terms of uh, having high quality confirmatory testing and having an illness uh, that really looks like COVID-19 on two occasions. Our CDC has under uh, a legal request uh, disclosed that they've never had a second case of COVID-19. They've never had a failure of natural immunity. That's been disclosed in the last mm -hmm. several months. Whereas our CDC is documented in October over 41,000 full vaccine failures. We're talking people fully vaccinated and they became so sick, they were hospitalized or died. So uh, there is a failure of the vaccine in large numbers and there's not a single failure of natural immunity. The only thing that propagates uh, this, uh, in a sense, false narrative is false positive testing, false positive PCR testing. If people keep getting tests over and over, go, over, and over again when they get the common cold, they will turn one of those tests positive. I can tell you it happens. And uh, that's not COVID-19 again. People should understand that those are false positive tests. And so once somebody's had the, the test, Frank, what I tell them is never get a, uh, once you've had the illness, never get a, a, another COVID test in the future. You're just in a sense risking a false positive result. There's also, um, I think it's brandstone.org. They have 140 papers on natural immunity. I mean, it's there. But if I want to fully participate in society, the society is saying, or the state is saying, I should get vaccinated. What would have been your advice to me in that instance? You know, the vaccine manufacturers and the regulatory agencies would agree with you that you don't need a vaccine. And you know that because people like you were excluded from the clinical trials. So uh, they, they knew that you couldn't benefit from a vaccine. And since you've already been exposed to the virus, in fact, you may be harmed by having the body uh, manufacture the spike protein. We now know that in you, the spike protein from the respiratory illness stays in the human body for up to 15 months. And that's been shown in a paper by Bruce Patterson and colleagues uh, from Northwestern and Stanford University. And 
He's demonstrated that very clearly the S1 segment is in human monocytes. And now a paper by Banzel and colleagues has demonstrated the S1 and the S2 uh, in human monocytes and in exosomes after, uh, after vaccination. So this would be worrisome that you're already uh, trying to handle the spike protein and get it out of your body. Uh, this is a prolonged exposure. And, and explains, by the way, why people develop long COVID syndrome, brain fog, uh, muscle fatigue, weakness. It's because the spike protein is in the brain. It's in the muscles. And this is after a respiratory infection. So the last thing you'd want to do is take a vaccine uh, where messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA loaded on lipid nanoparticles is distributed to the brain, the heart, uh, the, the skeletal muscles, uh, the bone marrow. That's the last thing you'd want to do. We now know from autopsy studies from people who have died after the vaccine, uh, either from a whole variety of lethal syndromes that can develop after vaccination, that the vaccine in fact goes everywhere. And we know the spike protein circulates widely in blood. In a paper by Agata and colleagues from Harvard, published in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease, Elena Agata showed that the spike protein is circulatory for up to a month after someone receives the vaccine. So you already feel poorly with long COVID syndrome. You already have natural immunity. The regulatory agencies would have excluded you from the randomized trials under no circumstances should you take a vaccine. It offers you no benefit and offers you considerable harm. And now three studies, one by Raw, one by Kramer, and the third by Methudius show indeed that, that if you in an ill-advised manner take a vaccine, you have a higher risk of serious reactions, including becoming hospitalized. So then, so you would have, if I had said, look, my wife is on to me, you know, we, uh, we just, we want to go out to a restaurant. We want to live a simple life. It seems to me that you wouldn't have administered the vaccine. Then. We never, we never administer any medicine or vaccines for social reasons. This idea yeah. that you know, I'm going to give you a medicine so you can go out to a restaurant. No, we would never do that. Mm -hmm. In fact, good doctors have never encouraged the vaccine because the vaccines are all under forms of research. They're clinical investigation in all the countries and doctors respect the Nuremberg code. And that comes from Nazi war crimes done by doctors in Germany. And uh, the Nuremberg Code says that doctors under no circumstances will provide any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for a patient uh, to take an experimental product or participate in research. So no, no good doctor has ever encouraged the vaccine. Doctors uh, should provide information about the risks and benefits. So good doctors from the beginning uh, were like me, were following the data and telling patients about the risks and potential benefits of the vaccines. The va vaccines do have both, by the way. They have risks and they have benefits. And, I, and that's part of the sanity thing that I really I want to get to with you. So, so let's just, um, so, I, you know, I, I can go home then from our appointment and go, right, I don't need to get the vaccine. He's given me, Dr. Peter's given me loads of examples. I'm quite happy in that. That would be it. I, I, I would have been a little bit worried. We would have had a conversation and you would have got you would have said to me, like you said, Frank, go home. You know, you're fine. Now, if I'd come to you again and um, I'm actually 46, um, it's the Irish weather, the battering of the Irish weather and wind. But um, at the time, you know, when uh, I ran, I was I ran a marathon in under four hours. I was pretty fit. I was up at five o'clock in the morning uh, doing my exercise every day and some characteristics of my Irish lifestyle um, are probably not the best, let's just say. But um, let's just say in this conversation then that I, I didn't get COVID and I came into you and I said, look, uh, everybody's getting the vaccine. I feel really healthy. What's your advice to me? Well, remember, you're under age 50. So even according to the very first publication that I had on treating COVID-19, that was the first one, by the way, in the world that taught doctors how to treat COVID-19, you wouldn't have received prescription drug treatment. You would have received uh, just the uh, over-the-counter approaches. Our first paper, we didn't feature the, the oral and nasal decontamination, wow. but our second one we did and subsequent uh, iterations of it so uh, if you would have developed COVID-19, you would just used a home treatment kit available over the counter, no doctor involved. 
it, but importantly, if you don't need treatment for COVID-19, then you certainly wouldn't clinically need a vaccine for COVID-19. So this is important. The vaccines do have benefits. We know this now from papers in the last three months, but the benefits are fairly restricted to individuals over age 65 and those who have medical problems. And what we know is uh, in this paper by 1040 and colleagues I've already quoted, there was a mortality benefit uh, for those who are hospitalized. Now people with the vaccine get hospitalized just like those without the vaccine, but once hospitalized, those who had the vaccine had a slight benefit. And then in a paper by Cohn and colleagues from the US Veterans Administration over a, a uh, 700,000 individuals, those over age 65, there was a 12 point absolute mortality benefit for, for, um, for death of, of favoring those who took the vaccine. But under age 65, there was only a 1% absolute mortality benefit. And then the protection from contracting COVID-19. I'm going to get you to say that again. You just you, you, you broke up very briefly there. It's a 1%. So in the paper by Cohn and colleagues from the VA, those under 65, it was only a 1% absolute mortality benefit for those who selected the vaccine. And then in September, coverage protection against respiratory illness uh, dropped dramatically in September for Moderna, uh, which dropped below 70%, Pfizer, which dropped below uh, 50%, and then J Johnson & Johnson, which dropped below 20%. That would be the same as AstraZeneca in, in your country. And in September, you know, something happened is one, most people got to six month uh, anniversary date from their vaccination. And also we had a full shading in of the Delta variant, which is now 99% of all uh, uh, COVID-19 across the world. We knew from a paper closer to you from Nordstrom and colleagues from Sweden, 1.6 million pairs of people, half vaccinated, half not, not vaccinated, that there was protection uh, by Pfizer and Moderna against COVID-19, the respiratory illness, uh, immediately after vaccination, by the way, the protection was uh, over 90%, but it faded to 23% with Pfizer, and I believe uh, just under 70% with Moderna. And there are now 22 studies showing the vaccine fades in its protection against COVID-19, the respiratory illness, after about six months. Importantly, uh, we've had data weigh in now uh, probably the most quotable paper is by um, uh, Singa Rajunian. It's a difficult name to, uh, to uh, pronounce, published in Lancet, but it was a carefully uh, uh, evaluated um, case contact study that clearly demonstrated that 39% of all the spread of the virus is occurring from fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. We knew in a paper by Chow and colleagues where people are locked down in a lockdown situation, Ho, Ho Chi Minh City in a dormitory for healthcare workers, uh, that they literally study them and they watch them pass the virus from one, one fully vaccinated person to another fully vaccinated person with the AstraZeneca virus. We have a paper by Hetamaki and colleagues from Finland showing in a healthcare setting that in fact fully vaccinated healthcare workers gave infection to unvaccinated nursing home patients. So we know the vaccines clearly don't stop transmission of the virus. Our CDC director has told Americans that in the middle of the summer, we're really down to a, uh, a benefit from uh, uh, being hospitalized and a mortality benefit uh, that is modest and it is ephemeral. Yeah. And I, I suppose I want to kind of hammer what you've just hammer home what you've said there in the sense of this in terms of the mass movement of it, I think was sold on that the individual could help the collective. And in a way that kind of blinded the individual needs for to protect the collective. That's what everybody was told. And um, people were queuing out in the street to, let's just say, do the right thing. And that's what, what people wanted to do because, but there was no communication beforehand about what you've just said there. There just wasn't. They were told that they would be protecting um, granny well, and granddad. Well, Frank, to be fair, remember uh, in the fall of 2020, all we had was the registrational trials, which had two months of observational data. 
and uh, there was 90% vaccine efficacy. So uh, things look good out of the clinical trials. And, and when one takes the vaccine, they actually sign a consent form where it says, we don't know if this is gonna work or not in terms of protecting you or protecting anybody else from COVID-19. The data on protection literally just has been published in the last three months. Uh, so we didn't know, we needed a period of time to observe if the vaccines really work well enough and are they safe enough? And unfortunately, we found that they simply don't work well enough uh, and they clearly are not safe enough for general use. Uh, but that was all learned in the last three months. We can't, you know, I can't fault people and, and for, for yeah, early I'm, on in the pandemic. You know, they're doing what they thought was the right thing because we, we knew nothing otherwise. And in a way, um, I, I, I'm not trying to fault that either. But what I am trying to um, get to is the idea that I, I would have said to you, well, you know, if it came to it and I said, look, I, I just want to know, are there any risks with this? And I think from that question, I, I, this is a really basic question, I would have said to you, which seems crazy that this question can't, wasn't allowed to be asked and seems to now still not be everywhere. If I was to say to you, so I'd like to go ahead with this, but are there any risks? Even back then, what would you have said to me? Well, you know, we always consider risks or safety before we even discuss efficacy. But since we've done it in the reverse order, it is important to understand the risks. And again, think about the timeline. The vaccines in the United States were rolled out uh, in early December. We had two months of data from the randomized trials. We knew there were local inflammatory reactions, but the number of deaths in the vaccine group and the uh, placebo group were small and similar. There wasn't any mortality benefit uh, but there wasn't any excess mortality. And then the program was started in the United States. And we have a, a, a mortality reporting that comes through our vaccine adverse event reporting system. It's spontaneously reported, but then we can check other systems that are not spontaneously reported, including the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Systems. Uh, but it was actually looking backwards, uh, uh, notable that January 22nd, we actually had excess deaths. We had more deaths than we would have expected for the entire US vaccine program. That was January 22nd. So I think the key issue is that we didn't have any external safety committee that provided advice to our government agencies. The government agencies are not competent or capable, nor are they positioned to stop the program because of excess mortality. Uh, that requires an external data safety monitoring board, critical event committee, and human ethics could me make that call. That always is the case in research. I've done that dozens of times in my career. So I can tell you that uh, we didn't have the authorities in place to stop the program. In the United States, that authority uh, would have stopped our vaccine program in February. I think it would have taken a few days or a few weeks to analyze all the data. And after about 27 million Americans who patriotically took the vaccine, the program would have been shut down, very similar to the swine flu program. Uh, in the United States in 1972, which was shut down uh, at that time with no VARES system, no, no Twitter or internet. It was shut down after 25 deaths. The deaths rose to 53, and we had only vaccinated 55 million people in the United States. With COVID-19, it would have been shut down in the United States in February uh, after 182 deaths and 27 million people vaccinated. Then there would have been an apology issued in 1976. People received compensation for death and injury. Uh, but here in the United States, without having a data safety monitoring board, the program rolled on. And so by March, uh, a small laboratory in France, investigators were valuing the data. They put out a warning saying, listen, shut down the program. People are dying. Uh, and uh, this does not look good. By uh, May, uh, Bruno and colleagues, 57 authors, 17 countries, uh, uh, published a paper and distributed everywhere to all the authorities saying, uh, you know, mass vaccination uh, program is not going well. We have serious questions. If we can't get safety boards in place, we need to stop the program. And then the evidence-based consulting group led by Dr. Tess Lowry uh, by June uh, did a, uh, a, basically a report uh, to the MHRA in the UK, uh, analyzing the data, the yellow card system. So not relying on the US system at all, but using the yellow card system found the same thing excess uh, mortality. And uh, the, the message to the MHRA is shut down the program, that the vaccines aren't safe 
for human use. And, and this was based on what happened in the spring is, is there was an independent analysis of the data by McLachlan and colleagues from Queen's University in England that you know through data through April found that, uh, uh, that about half of the deaths occur within 48 hours of the vaccine, about 80% within a week, uh, that when the uh, vignettes are independently analyzed and coded, that 86% of the time, there's no other explanation outside the vaccine as the proximate cause of death. Uh, we had a nursing home study from Scandinavia where there was 100 deaths after the vaccine. Independent review found about 40% of the deaths were attributable to the vaccine. So these are large fractions. And what we found out from the McLaughlin paper is sadly, those individuals, those individuals who are um, dying of the vaccine, that those uh, are our seniors, those who are most vulnerable to the respiratory infection um, altogether. So and by the same mechanism, the spike protein in the respiratory infection, in a sense, is the fatal component of the virus. Uh, by giving the vaccine, we're causing the body to produce an uncontrolled quantity and for an uncontrolled duration of the dangerous spike protein, the same spike protein that was altered in the lab in Wuhan, China. We're now in a sense giving that back to people voluntarily through the vaccine program. And that run of the spike protein in the body, which can last probably a month or more, in some people is simply not tolerated, particularly the vulnerable and elderly, it is lethal. And everything you said there is that is, is just simply the word risk. Uh, you know, I was at a march on the street and people were shouting from the, uh, you know, they were basically saying where there is risk, there must be choice. And um, is it correct to say that in Japan, uh, you see, you have to be careful what you read on the Internet, but in Japan, they're now putting warning labels on the vaccines. Is that sure. Well, we've had warning, you know, the vaccines had warning labels initially for um, blood clots in the brain in the United States for Johnson & Johnson. And later on, Johnson & Johnson had extension uh, for a neurologic complication called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is ascending paralysis. Separately, Pfizer and Moderna had official FDA warnings put on it for heart inflammation. And the warnings essentially tell people don't take the vaccine because of heart inflammation or myocarditis, which can be fatal. In fact, there are now fatal cases that Koreans uh, have reported a clear-cut case of fatal myocarditis. And um, that was only with 200 cases in June in the United States. And despite those warnings, uh, uh, parents still had younger people, had their children get vaccinated. Now we have over 16,000 cases of heart damage uh, due to the vaccine. And we now know in a paper by Rose and myself from the VARIS system published in Current Problems of Cardiology that this risk for heart inflammation extends to people up to your age people yeah. up to age 50 and men, 90% of the, the victims of the heart damage due to the vaccine are men. Yeah, and I did a podcast with Dr. Jessica Rose um, on, her, on the paper that was removed um, without explanation, um, but we, we won't go down that um, road for the moment. Um, so I have uh, three children. Um, when I got sick with COVID, I thought, uh, my instinct was, you know, all the advice was go lock up in the room. My instinct was, no, I, I'm just going to hug my kids because if anything it does happen on the off chance, I'll have wanted to have hugged my kids. And so I, 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 they're wrong. That, that's just a, a paternal instinct. And, and I think after a week, maybe they've got a headache. They got a little bit. My wife got sick, but uh, interestingly, she is on antihistamines. And um, she didn't get as sick as I, but like she joked that I was the male, so I was always going to feel a little bit worse. But um, so here we are now. I have a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 10-year-old. Um, and in Ireland, they have brought in vaccines for the 5 to 11-year-olds, right? And... So that's my little daughter, Faye, we're talking about. We won't talk about my boys. They haven't been vaccinated either. But uh, at this moment in time, they're bringing it in for the very young. Now, again, I would ring you up, having the privilege to have such a good doctor. And I'd say, look, um, my instinct is to under no circumstances to get my beautiful daughter with her wonderful immune system and her growing biological um, body 
um, there's no way I want to get it done. But if you say to me, because I trust you, um, I, I probably will think twice about it. What's your view on kids and vaccines? You know, the best path for children to stay healthy is to stay away from the vaccines. And uh, this is what we know is uh, in our FDA meetings on deliberating on pediatric vaccination in September and October, there was general agreement in the meeting minutes that 40% of children like yours had already had COVID-19 uh, through May. And now we've had the Delta outbreak over the summer. My estimates are 80% of children have already had COVID-19. They already have natural immunity, which is robust, complete, and durable. They can't get it again. They can't spread it again. Our, our CDC uh, tells America that you can't get it a second time. You can't spread it. So that's wonderful for 80% of the children. Uh, you know, in the United States, the children are back to school, no restrictions, and there's no outbreaks. There's been no spread of the virus now, so the entire fall term. So we know it's over with for children. This is wonderful news. Uh, uh, there are data suggesting that school teachers have the safest of all the professions. Uh, there hasn't been a documented case where a student actually transmitted the virus to a teacher. So the schools are safe. They're safe havens for the virus. Uh, we know the kids are perfectly fine. And as your vignette describes, 85% of the spread, by the way, occurs in the home, typically, fr typically from adult to child. So that's, that's the typical uh, uh, type of spread that was originally published by the Chinese. They were right about that. And uh, for the children, even if a child still is susceptible, we have two clinical trials, one by Frank and one by Walther, age 12 to 17, age 5 to 11, respectively, New England Journal of Medicine, 4,500 kids together were randomized to the Pfizer vaccine versus placebo. In 12 to 17, by the way, Pfizer dose is unchanged from the adult dose is 30 micrograms per shot, two shots. But for ages five to 11, it's dropped to a third, only 10 micrograms per shot, uh, again, for two shots. We know that the absolute benefit of getting the vaccine uh, was to prevent about two dozen cases of a runny nose or the sniffles. Uh, there was no severe disease in either group, no difference uh, mention of any spread or any other consequences. Uh, taking the vaccine for the childhood benefit was uh, basically, it just was not clinically compelling uh, to ever give a vaccine to a child. And now we have the safety data shading in. And even in the randomized trials by uh, Frank and Walther, about a third of the kids got pretty sick with fever, uh, muscle aches, a sore arm, had to miss school. Even that alone by itself um, uh, is reason not to take the vaccine. Uh, but now we have a very, very concerning data by Hogue and colleagues published uh, from the University of California at Davis, showing thousands of cases of heart injury now, that one uh, is more likely to be hospitalized with myocarditis, serious heart damage, as opposed to taking their chances with COVID-19 and never being hospitalized with COVID-19. And it's been my experience advising so many people across the country, if not the world, that pediatric uh, COVID-19 requires no treatment unless there's severe symptoms. And if there are severe symptoms, it's easily treated with the nebulized albuterol, budesonide, azithromycin, orally, oral uh, prednisolone, and then, and then weight-adjusted aspirin. So we can always treat children through it. You know, sadly, of the children who are hospitalized with COVID-19, it's really because they didn't receive any early treatment. Yeah, and um, in Ireland, um, in recent, in the last six weeks, they've suddenly brought in masks for that younger age group into the classrooms. And there seems to be a mass movement towards vaccinating children in the media. And there's the implication that it's coming. They're giving it to granny and granddad. Um, so, uh, I mean, all the evidence suggests that the vaccines do not prevent the spread. So it's a, it's a misnomer. I wanted to say something though about the ethical and moral underpinnings of what you said. The idea is that so, so somehow the grandparents aren't put at risk. Um, you know, effectively that's using our children as human shields. And I can tell you um, my reaction to that is I think that's uh, unethical, it's immoral. And from a, from a civil perspective, it's illegal. Uh, we can never put our children at harm's way in order to basically make them a human shield for others. And I think anyone who is promoting vaccination in children, uh, that their intentions are reprehensible. Yeah, I, uh, I agree utterly.
Um, okay, I'm, I'm going to just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I might have six minutes more of your time, I'm hoping. So I'm going to try and, um, I have a, a couple of friends that have are double vaccinated, but wondering about the booster. They're healthy enough uh, people below 50. Um, again, I'm guessing that your advice would be that there's no need for them to get a vaccine. Well, remember, the original vaccines were all keyed against the wild-type spike protein with just a few modifications. Moderna has a, a few modifications from Pfizer, for instance. Moderna, by the way, has the best performance uh, from the vaccines, 100 micrograms of messenger RNA. So if one was going to take a vaccine and, and looked at the differential efficacy data, I imagine Moderna would be selected. But um, having said that, the vaccine efficacy uh, in all the studies now, it's clear, uh, has waned considerably against Delta. And since Delta is 99% of all the cases right now, to give a booster for a vaccine that's not uh, adequately targeting uh, Delta means just excess risk and with little opportunity for benefit. Uh, there are no convincing randomized clinical trials at all of giving a booster and providing protection against the Delta variant. We, we really demand randomized trial data. We know the vaccine manufacturers and the governments have all the resources available. We've been in the thick of the Delta variant now for the entire summer, and there hasn't been a convincing randomized trial. So um, I would anticipate the boosters would largely be even more risk and less benefit. And, um, and now one is gonna get into a vicious cycle of accumulation of the spike protein. We know that the spike protein with each injection uh, is probably in the body for over a year. Uh, mm -hmm. Data from Bruce Patterson uh, revealed on my radio show, the McCullough Report, America Out Loud Talk Radio, made that clear that those who are accepting the vaccines are accumulating the S1 and the S2 segment of the spike protein in their body for months, if not years, after vaccination. And there's great concern in people in my circles that, in fact, this is going to lead to chronic disease. I think one or two shots and no booster, I think people have a chance of clearing out the spike protein, just like you had the respiratory illness, you'll clear out the spike protein. But if we reintroduce another loading of the body with the Wuhan spike protein, that protein that was uh, altered and devised in the lab in China, if we, if we basically load the body with that on an every six month interval, um, I'm greatly concerned about the promotion of chronic disease, neurologic, cardiac, hematologic, immunologic, and there now are concerns based on interaction between the S2 segment of the spike protein and two cancer genes, P53 and BRCA or the BRCA gene, there's concern now, if we get into boosters every six months, that the vaccines could be oncogenic, they could be cancer forming. Um, and uh, people with autoimmune disease, is there any implications with the vaccine and autoimmune disease? Any underlying disease along the vaccine injury syndrome lists of diseases are at enhanced risk. So autoimmune would be at enhanced risk for what's called multi-system inflammatory disorder. It's now known people with blood clotting abnormalities are more likely to get uh, serious blood clots with the vaccines, which it can be a fatal risk. Those with underlying heart problems who already have heart damage, and then they sustain more heart damage with the vaccines, uh, could end up with heart failure or cardiac death. Those with neurologic syndromes, and then they sustain neurologic injury. Uh, let's say someone with multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's or someone who has had a prior stroke and then they suffer an additional stroke related to the vaccine. You can just see how uh, the vaccines compound uh, various types of medical problems that exist. And one of the observations in, is in the randomized trials, uh, they recruited ostensibly healthy populations. I remember in J&J trial, for instance, 60% of people had no medical problems. Well, I'm about ready to go to the hospital, Frank, and everyone I see has medical problems. So that means everyone in my practice is at an enhanced risk for a vaccine injury syndrome. Sadly, some of those are fatal. Okay. Um, I have one more uh, specific question. Um, there's a Dr. Jo John Campbell in the UK. I think um, he was wondering about... A, aspirating the injection when va vaccination. One suggestion is that it, this isn't being done and is leading to the spike protein hitting a vein and moving around the body. Do you know anything about that? Does that mean anything to you? Well, good clinical practice is one should always aspirate the syringe, make sure they're not in a blood vessel before they inject forward. But we know these lipid nanoparticles now, there's been enough studies 
and uh, to show that they really get widely distributed everywhere. I think they're taken up into the capillary system and the deltoid pretty quickly. Ogata and colleagues showed measurable circulating spike protein within an hour. Um, the autopsy studies from uh, Germany and Austria show uh, the spike protein generation is in the brain, heart, it's in the bone marrow. Paper by Avolio and colleagues show the pericytes uh, in the heart are directly damaged by the spike protein. Uh, I, I just don't think that uh, there's any way of mitigating risk here. People have tried to put cold packs on the arm and try to keep the vaccine in the arm. Uh, it, it, these vaccines have a dangerous mechanism of action. We indicated that in the Bruno paper uh, that was published on uh, Authoria on the preprint server. Uh, we indicated that listen, it's a dangerous mechanism of action. I mean, look where we are in the United States. Our CDC VAR system now has just hit a grim milestone. We have tw over 20,000 deaths that have occurred after the vaccine. We know about half of those are domestic. And we know from our CMS data, of which have been uh, fully produced to the government in a whistleblower lawsuit from the CMS, that the underreporting factor from the VAERS system is about fivefold. So truly, we could be at 100,000 deaths that would have come in through our VAERS system. Half of those are domestic. This is catastrophic, Frank. This is worse than a war. People are volunteering for these vaccinations, and they're losing their lives. The layperson's argument that I've heard is, look, you know, there's never been more vaccines given out at any one time. And that's why, you know, I've heard that argument. I don't, I, I, but statistically speaking, it's not true. Would you know versus the flu vaccine and injuries and this percentage wise, is it just, is it dramatically up? It's dramatically up in a paper by Jessica Rose published in the Journal of American uh, uh, Public Health and Policy it's clear that in 2021, uh, in the United States, for instance, we have had skyrocketing in safety reports and deaths. Keep in mind, the United States, uh, we administer 278 million shots a year. With COVID-19, we've just gotten to 200 million administrations. So with COVID-19, we still haven't reached what the total would be for all the pediatric and adult vaccinations combined. So our safety report of 20,000 deaths in VAERS where the total annual number is, is no more than 150. It's a clear signal that the, something's going wrong with the COVID-19 vaccine program. It has unprecedented mortality associated with it. We're now December, 2021. Um, by, you know, we're practically two years now into this. Um, what, what would you wish for right now? If you had, if you were in, let's just say Dr. Fauci's position, what is the first thing that you would do? The public health agencies have given no um, report to uh, the public on vaccine safety and efficacy. So, and what we've learned independently is not favorable. Uh, in my opinion, that um, there have been multiple calls from multiple different groups starting in March of 2021 uh, for the vaccine programs to be uh, paused or halted uh, for a deep uh, and thorough safety review. So I'm calling for the vaccine programs to stop worldwide, all of them, uh, including uh, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, Sinovac, the Coronavac vaccine, all of them. Uh, and they need a thorough independent safety review. Uh, the vaccines have not been safe enough, nor have they had an impact on the pandemic. And so what we should do from this point forward is recognize that high-risk patients, those over age 50 with medical problems, uh, need uh, multi-drug therapy started on day one at home. Uh, and that'll be the pathway for us to manage from the pandemic forward. Um, that pathway that I've outlined, I'm convinced will be far superior than the continuation of giving the vaccines, which are not sufficiently safe or effective, and the continued uh, activities by government agencies to suppress early treatment to individuals and uh, make it difficult for doctors to manage patients. All those activities should cease and desist immediately. And governments should do an about face and fully support doctors in using all of the tools available to them uh, to treat patients early to avoid hospitalization and death. The governments can actually uh, get their, themselves back on track, but it has to basically be in lockstep with 
doctors exer exerting their best judgment in taking care of patients uh, in the midst of this crisis. Um, Dr. Peter McCullough, I'd like to thank you very much for your time today. Um, uh, I know you haven't got much sleep and you're not getting much sleep and I wish you um, all the best in every endeavor.